The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Now, many of you know this psalm. You've sung it. There's been a chorus sang years ago that was very, very popular and and there are a lot of hymns based on this psalm, and we've sung some of these psalms in the last couple of weeks that um, we've been preaching. And uh, there's a new uh, emphasis on um, writing music for psalms. So we have some wonderful opportunities, and that's one that we've sung a lot over the years. It's a favorite psalm. It's not right up there with 20, Psalm 23, but it's pretty close. Um, simply because it's just an expression of praise and wonder and glory that you don't have in all the psalms. Um, the bulk of the psalm is about man, but the, the central theme is the majesty of God. It's a hymn, and it reaches the height of of majesty for us to sing and even for David to sing when he when he wrote it. And there's there is a development of thought in it. We'll, we'll go through that that uh, goes from the from the, the heights, the glory of God, uh, down to the lowest beast of the earth. And um, we'll we'll see that thought as we as we go through it. Man in this psalm is pictured as the center of creation. Um, a little lower than the heavenly beings, Steve read. So you've got God, you've got man a little lower, and then you've got everything below man. Uh, Kid Derek Kidner says, This psalm is an unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be, celebrating as it does the glory and grace of God, rehearsing who He is and what He has done, and relating us and our world to Him, all with the masterly economy of words, and in a spirit of mingled joy and awe. Then he goes on to say, The range of thought takes us not only above the heavens and back to the beginning, but as the New Testament points out, on to the very end. It's the greatness of God and, and, and the place of man in, in, in God's universe. And it's a messianic psalm as well. Uh, as we'll see, uh, he begins uh, with the uh, introduction to the choir master. Uh, so I figure we'll start there. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. Um, the meaning of that uh, is uh, a matter of question, uh, debatable by people who write commentaries and theologians. Uh, some of your translations might say um, gath instead of gittith. Um, the two words are related. Some think when they see gath, who was from gath, Goliath was from gath. And so that brings in more confusion of all of this. Um, that maybe he wrote this after the killing of Goliath. We know from Second Samuel chapter 18 that there were some loyalties that changed in that process. Some of the 
Um, some of the soldiers that quite possibly fought with Goliath came to David's side at some point. And so maybe he wrote it based on that. Because of the meaning of the word, it, it could just be referring to those who would tread the wine press. It's another possible meaning of this. Uh, Leupold, um, an old uh, commentary, says that this means after the tune of the treaders of the wine press. Um, which is a possibility. They, um, Psalm 81 and 84 have the same introduction. Uh, and all three of these, 8, 81, and 84, all three are very joyous psalms. So it could be um, uh, not because they were drinking the wine necessarily, but because um, they were doing their work and joyful in doing that, making a joyful noise, as the psalmist said in another place. Spurgeon um, entitled this, The Song of the Astronomer because it seems to have been prompted by somebody who's contemplating the night skies. We don't know how old David was when he wrote it. Um, could be, some suggest he was a young shepherd, uh, because there's no talk here about his enemies, no talk here about the burdens of being a king or anything like that. He, he just seems young, and he's taking care of the sheep and he's laying on his back on the grass and he's looking up at the night sky and it could be that he wrote it at that moment because he was a musician as we know. So let's look at it and see in a little bit of time we have what we can learn from Psalm 8. We see a clear outline. God's name is majestic because of his glory. Um, we see God's name is majestic also because of his love. And we see God's name is majestic because of his grace. We'll go through each of these um, best we can. Here's a hymn of praise about the glory of God, the height of majesty, seldom understood by man. In fact, in fact, David's there and he's, he, he, he's saying, your glory is above everything that I'm seeing. I can't even fathom it. I can't grasp it. So he begins by praising God for his excellent name and his glory in the earth and above the heavens. Oh, Lord, look at those two verses. Verse 2. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And we got all those praise songs I was talking about. You know, we sing those choruses over and over and over. He does have two refrains here. He begins with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And he ends with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And many of those Praise choruses, um, sing, sing refrains over and over and over. And I was talking to somebody last week who what they weren't in church here. They were visiting um, another church out of town. I asked them about the music, and they said, "Well, it was kind of repetitious." Um, 
And so we call those seven eleven. Seven words eleven times. That's what we call even the praise band. But sometimes we have a few songs like that where we'll repeat the refrain at the end of it. And at rehearsal, they'll say, so when does this song end? And I'll say, when I stop singing. And then they give me a goofy look like, yeah, well, why don't you give us a good answer? He says, all the earth. How about that? How majestic is your name in all the earth? Did David understand? He recognizes that God is the covenant God of Israel, but he's the God of everything. So he's laying there taking care of the family's sheep. And he looks up at the stars and begins to wonder. He considers the vastness of creation. And at the same time realizes the insignificance of humanity. We don't get that opportunity um, this day and age because we have street lights. And there's light everywhere. Unless you live way out in the country, you can see the stars, can't you, Greg and Donna? Can't you see the stars out there? Yeah. Or somebody, we've got a daughter and friends in New York City, and sometimes they'll, they'll come visit, and we'll go out for a drive at night or whatever. They say, wow, you can see stars down here in the south, as if only stars in the south, you know. As Carl Sagan used to say, billions and billions of stars. And sometimes we, we, we experience that emotion too and we just try to fathom the greatness of God, the immensity of creation. Our responsibility, though, is to do what David did. Our responsibility is to praise God. And he does it powerfully. Oh, Lord, our Lord. He says that he says in the English that word twice, but it's not. It's two different words. You see, and the first Lord is all caps, right, in your Bible? Oh, Lord. Wait, it's on the screen. Oh, Lord, all caps. That's, that's translator's way of designating Yahweh, Jehovah God. Whenever you see Lord, all caps in the Old Testament, it's always Yahweh. Oh, Jehovah God. The second Lord is Adonai, Lord over us. And so, oh, Lord, it's as if he's saying, oh, Jehovah, our Adonai. Wonderful expression. And then he thinks of him and looks out and ponders the vastness of the universe. You've set your glory above the heavens. It's too great for me to even express. I just know it's above the heaven. It's too great for me to put in words. There aren't words for it. And, and these people, these pre-scientific people weren't ignorant of these sorts of things. They, they, these people knew that a mountain far away was, looked small, but as they walked closer to the mountain, it got bigger. So they, they knew that those things far away were immense and large. They didn't have numbers like we do today. They didn't know exactly how massive the vastness of God's creation really was, but they could grasp it on their level. And he knew it was larger than he could imagine. 
And he knew God because of it. We see Paul reminds us of that in Romans 1, um, about the invisible and visible attributes of God, when he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. If nobody told you anything else, you can see out there and know God on some level. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Those who look out there and have some recognition that there is something out there that made all that, that put all of that together and denies him, they're without excuse. Then in verse 2, he comments on all of that. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established... Where was I? You have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. God's glory is great and magnified by what? Insignificant things. Infants and babies. Sometimes the power of God brings to pass great things by weak and unlikely people. And God puts his enemies to silence by the insignificance of that weakness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And there's an example of all this in Scripture. That, um, Psalm 8 is quoted in the New Testament many, many times, even by Jesus. And we have that story, which I read for you earlier in the service, where Jesus has entered Jerusalem and cleansed the money changers for the second time in his ministry. And, and he, he enters in triumph at Palm Sunday, and he's in the temple area, and he's healing the the lame and, and the giving sight to the blind and those who came to him. And, and the children, guess what the children are doing? The children are still singing, Hosanna to the Son of David. And this ticked off the religious leaders, the chief priests and teachers of the law. And Jesus' response is verse 16 of Matthew 21. Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Well, that was a real compliment. Oh, don't you remember your Bible? Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? So he quotes Psalm 8. And if they had been indignant toward Jesus before he said this, now they really were. Identifying the praise of the children of Jerusalem with Psalm 8. And he validated their words, calling him 
son of David, the Messiah. Jesus validates their words as he quotes Psalm 8. He's addressing the chief priest, by the way, there. Um, Scribes, those who had perverted the meaning of the law. And so think about it, those higher-ups perverted the meaning of the law. To Jesus, the innocence of children and their instinctive praise and worship was the essence of true worship, not what the religious leaders were proclaiming. So the impotence of a child displays his power. He's ordained strength to them, established strength to them. Why, is, why, why would you say that they're, that they're the weakest and the, the least to be able to do this? Someone said an acorn falls from a parent tree. Without any further care, the acorn strikes a root and becomes a vigorous sapling. A calf is born, and on that day, that calf stands up and staggers and walks on the day of his birth. But a baby... For many years after their birth, if left without a mother's care, will die. That child grows to be a man. And God has given that child dominion over all of his creation. The reason why God displays his strength in unlikely vessels is because it works to silence his enemies. George Whitfield wrote a letter <clears throat> to somebody. And um, <clears throat> when he was preaching in the Moorfields, if you know his story, uh, churches wouldn't have Whitfield, and so he preached outside. And in the Moorfields in England, he was preaching. And it's sort of as a as an ending, a P.S., a postscript to, to this letter. He says, I can't, cannot help adding that we've had little boys and girls who are fond of sitting around me on the pulpit while I preach. Oh, by the way, while he would preach, the thugs would show up and they'd throw dead cats at him. They'd throw eggs at him. They'd throw rotten food at him while Whitfield was preaching. And though these children were often pelted with eggs and dirt thrown at me, never once gave way. But on the contrary, every time I was struck, turned up their little weeping eyes and seemed to wish they could receive the blows for me. God make them in their growing years great and living martyrs for him who, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, ordained strength. Put to silence the enemies of God. And David was a young man when he killed Goliath. He wrote this song. could be in some way he's talking about himself. Who knows? God used him, David, as a child to write songs to bring down the mighty. Secondly, we see God's name is majestic because of his love. Praise appears to be sparked by 
comparing the work of God in the heavens with the seeming insignificance of man again. Uh, Verse 3, when I look at your heavens, it's not the heavens, notice that. He didn't say when I look at the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, not the work of your mighty arms or the work of your hands. No, just the work, it just took your fingers. In fact, it just took God's word to create. The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man? Well, nothing, if you stop there. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You know, it's a vast universe. I had fun with Google this week, getting all these facts that I'm a possibly waste your time sharing with you. It's 4.3 light years to the nearest star from our sun. Light years are in the trillions. That star is Alpha Centauri, which is actually three stars. It's in a group. The light we see is just the light of all of them. So you see the light from that star tonight. You're seeing light that originated in February 2012. If that star blew up tonight, you wouldn't see the explosion until January 2022. That's how far it is. And it's the closest star to our sun. And mind you, that light is traveling light speed 186,000 miles per second. The earth is small. If you took our sun and you hollowed it out, it would take 1,100 earth-sized objects to fill it up. The universe is so vast that if our entire galaxy... You just removed our entire galaxy from the universe. It would be like taking one grain of sand from the beach. You wouldn't even notice it. And the immensity of that held David in awe. He's 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 looking up and he's seeing about five thousand stars. Four-inch telescope sees about two million stars. The Mount Polymer 200-inch mirror is able to see more than a billion stars, and we have telescopes much larger than that. Expanse is beyond comprehension. If you traveled at rocket speed, let's say if you were traveling 19... Some of you drive this fast. If you you traveled 19,000 miles per hour... It would take 144,000 years for you to reach the nearest star. Oh, I got more. That's fascinating to me. As far as the light year is concerned, the calculation shows that it is equal to 60,000 times the distance of the sun from the earth. So a light year is, 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 is distance. Um, it's not chronology. It's not a, not a time. The universe is 
so vast that to cross at the speed of light, to cross across our universe, which is ever-growing, to cross our universe at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, it would take 40 billion years for you to do that. To travel the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, it would take you eight minutes to get to the sun. Oh, I won't. I got so much more. David's son Solomon would later say, when he built the temple, 1 Kings 8:27, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Oh, the greatness of God. Talking about the work of thy fingers. John, the Puritan John Trapp said, This is the most elaborate and accurate. It is a metaphor from embroidery or tapestry. You cannot consider the witness of God's creative glory without being impressed with the never-ending activity of God's universe. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, Paul said in Colossians 1, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. All, All that vastness that I just explained to you, Christ holds together. If he takes his hand off of it, it falls apart. The writer of Hebrews says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So although creation expresses his glory... Revealing God's existence, God's wisdom, God's power, God's greatness, God's immensity. It's only a partial revelation of the greater God who stands behind it. As great as it is, creation. It's only a partial reality of the greatness of God. David has a dilemma here. Thinks of when I look at the work of your fingers, the moon and stars, which you have set in place. His dilemma is, what is man that you should consider him? What is man that you are mindful of him? And we don't think of that very often, do we? Stunned by the beauty and vastness of God's world. But what is man? Leon Morris has said, man has corrupted the meaning and purpose of the stars in two ways. One, he has assumed the stars have greater influence over human lives and developed a monstrous system of pagan astrology. And the other, as his concept of the vastness of space has increased, he has assumed that man is of no importance. The earth is merely a speck of dust in an infinite and evolving universe, and man is an accidental bit of 
organic scum on the dust particle? This 20th century question was raised in essence long ago by the psalmist. How could the God who created the mighty heavens possibly be interested in man? It would appear that God would just have more to love than man. It would appear that God would have more to care for than humans. Because the universe didn't rebel against God. The universe is not an enemy of God like man is. Creation groans, though, waiting for its freedom from the bondage of decay. And man, we're just a speck. We're just a a flea on this canvas of history. Those facts I shared with you earlier about the vastness of the universe quickly confirms our smallness, doesn't it? And the fact that God shouldn't seem to care for us should stagger us. And the fact that God does care for us should launch us in the singing, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God has no obligation to us. Chose to love us and call us to ourselves. And through Christ, no one is beyond God's love and affection, no matter how small and insignificant we are. And then thirdly, God's name is majestic because of His grace, because of His redemptive glory. Amazed that God would even be mindful of man, David knows that God created us just a little lower than the angels or a little lower than the heavenly beings or a little lower than God, depending on what your translation reads. Set man over the works, gave us dominion over the works of his hands, the animals, the birds, the fish. Verse 5, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, which is the proper, probably the most proper translation there. Crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. We know just from these couple of verses that David, David had an understanding of the book of Genesis. It's an interesting thing, though, when the psalm gets around to describing us specifically, humans specifically, made him a little lower than heavenly beings. He didn't say you made him a little above the beasts, a little lower than the heavenly beings. could have been written the other way around. The bottom line here is that man is in, in between the lowest of creation and the highest of everything. Man is in the middle. The fact that we've been made in God's image, we are to become increasingly like God. We see that word heavenly beings and we wonder what he means because some of your translations might say a little lower than the angels. Well, the word there is Elohim. It's a plural word for God. But if we translate it a little lower than God, then it would read, you have made him a little lower than you. It would be kind of awkward. 
But Elohim is used not just for God in Scripture. It's also used for spiritual beings. It's used that way in Psalm 82 in two different locations in that psalm. But for some reason, the uh, translators who translated the Hebrew and the Greek and the Septuagint used the term angels there instead of heavenly beings. That's the one that many translations have picked up on. See, what he's saying is God made, God made man a little lower than the heavenly beings. Elohim. For the purpose of achieving our salvation. You see, when God created man, he said, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. David had those verses in mind when he's writing this psalm. And we know that Adam has enjoyed dominion over those things for a while. Adam was the, was the Lord of creation. Because of sin, he was stripped of that lordship. The fall, the fall really subverted mankind's dominion and rule. Now it's clear both from the, from the Bible and from history that we're not ruling anymore, are we? There's too much pain, there's too much chaos, there's too much death. Plantinga, Cornelius Plantinga said, In sin, people attack or evade or neglect their divine calling. These and other images suggest deviance. Even when it is familiar, sin is never normal. And that's why we lost dominion in the fall. But in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see the authority once again. And we need once again for the New Testament to help us interpret the Old Testament in this, in this passage. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, we read, You have made him, and this is another quote from Psalm 8, You've made him a little lower than the angels. Now the writer of Hebrews used um, angels because he's using the Septuagint, the Old Testament Septuagint, uh, to, to write his book. You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And putting everything in subjection to him... He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. In other words, Psalm 8 needs a Savior. Needs one who would take the punishment for what we deserve because our sin removed us from dominion over everything. And in grace, God sent his Son to redeem us, to raise him from the dead. To bestow on him the name which is above every name, which we see in Philippians 2. And his name being the most majestic in all the earth, crowned with honor and glory, that's our rightful king. 
That's the one who came. You know, he has dominion over everything. We have examples. He has the power of the beast of the field. How could he get on an unbroken donkey with absolute composure? He had power over the birds of the air. He could say that even the fall of a single sparrow was under his control. He had power over the fish of the sea. He could could give one to Peter that had money in its mouth. Or fill up Peter's nets with abundance of fish. How exciting to know that that same dominion will be restored to you and me one day. The author of Hebrews makes the point. We're not currently ruling everything. Hebrews 2.8, I just read that for you. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Hebrews 2.9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. That's in the incarnation. That's always not a little lower than the angels. Any other time, it's just in the incarnation. We see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And then chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Psalm 8 needed a Savior. James Boyce said, Although made in God's image and ordained to become increasingly like the God to whom we look, men and women have turned their backs on God, and since they will not look upon upward to God, which is their privilege and duty, they actually look downward to the beast and so become increasingly like them. That's what evolution is about. That's what our attempt to create God in our image instead of the other way around is about. It's that downward looking to the beast that humans do. E. Campbell Morgan said, In him we have had the full revelation of the greatness of man. But we've had more than that. We've seen him crowned with glory and honor that by the grace of God he should taste death for every man. That vision creates our confidence that man will at last realize his divine purpose. One day, that dominion will be restored. And the writer of Hebrews there, in chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. And what happens when you do that? What happens when we fix our mind on the the King of the earth, the, the Savior and Lord, the one who died on the cross for us? What happens when we ponder Him, when we consider Him, when we fix our eyes on Him? I'll tell you what happens. We say, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. And we sing it. And we shout it from the rooftops. But that's where David ends. 
How majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. In a moment, we'll sing a hymn. We encourage you during that time, if you have questions, need somebody to pray with you, while we're singing, just make your way to the back. Some of our elders and others will be back there to receive you and pray with you. I encourage you to do that. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the one that tending the sheep but still had his attention on you and was able to declare who you are. We're too feeble to even grasp your greatness, but, oh, Lord, in Christ, we get to see it. You can't even put him into words if he's our Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, that if there's one here today, you're not their Lord and Savior. You might draw them to yourself. They might submit to you and grasp hold of what you've done for them on the cross. Use your word to change our lives, Father. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.